from John chapter 3, and uh, we're going to look through this. We'll go back to Numbers 21 in just one moment. But let's start by reading the text here. As we did last week, we're going to read through this whole context, so from verse 1 through verse 21, and then we're really just looking at two verses this morning. So John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except a man except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do not know, and testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. If I have told you of earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven... And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest." that they are wrought in God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask for your blessing on it. Teach us and instruct us. May it become alive within our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm sure, even if you've only been saved for just a short time, that there are times when you have had uh, something confusing in the Bible and, and it didn't make sense, maybe even for a long time. And then all of a sudden, maybe you read through it again later and the knowledge you've gained through the years came or it was taught in some way that all of a sudden the penny drops and it makes sense. I think I've struggled with that passage for so long, with that idea for so long, and then it makes sense to you. I think this moment here, as we look at what happened to Nicodemus, I think is one of those moments A moment where he has had something that has perplexed him for so long, 
and never really understood it, now the penny drops and it makes sense to him. And that's what these two verses, our text this morning is really just 14 and 15, comes to tell us. Nicodemus has come to, to Jesus because he wants to know more about this person who can do miracles and who speaks in such a powerful way. And as Jesus uh, speaks with him, as Nicodemus came that night, he tells him that the kingdom isn't just about being a Jew, but it is bigger than that, more important than that. Of course, it includes that and has so much promise to the Jews, but you don't get into the kingdom of God simply because you're a Jew. It has to do with the heart. And I mentioned at the end last week that Jesus is really talking to Nicodemus here about what the new covenant means, something that he was familiar with. In Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25, God promises to Israel and to those that believe, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Jesus is telling Nicodemus and exposing some of this that it wasn't just about being a Jew, but it was about the heart. Not just about what's on the inside, but that God needs to change your heart and make you a new person. Initially, in the conversation that uh, Jesus is having with Nicodemus, Nicodemus is confused because it's so different from the expectations that he had had and he had learned all in his, his years. And so he's confused and it brings him to ask the question in, in verse 9, how can this be mine? How can I have this assurance, this, this new life that you promise, seeing it's so different than what I expected? So to answer that question, Jesus illustrates this event, this new life, with uh, an event in Old Testament history, in Jewish history, that had baffled the Jews for centuries. They didn't understand it. And that's this picture in verse 14 and 15. We've been told, as Jesus has told Nicodemus, that we must be born again, be given new life, that we, we must have eternal life through this, excuse me, this new birth. New life and this new birth is from above, it comes from God. It's a work of God alone and not our own work. And that's what verse 13 meant when he says, I've come down from heaven. We must be born again. And that is the reason that in John 3, verse 14, Jesus says he must be lifted up. Because we need to be born again, Jesus needs to be lifted up on the cross. He's meeting that need. So here's how Jesus answers Nicodemus's question. How can this new life be mine? And this is how Jesus begins his answer of that question and he does so by taking Nicodemus to think on an Old Testament event that happened in the lives of the Jews as they escaped from Egypt and were on their way to the Promised Land. I want to read a short portion of that for you this morning. It's Numbers 21, and in verse 4 we'll begin, and we'll read through verse 9. So it says, And they, that is the Israelites, journeyed 
from Mount Or, by the way of the Red Sea, to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord, that he may take away the serpents from us. Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass, that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass, that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. So as Jesus begins to explain this, the first thing he talks about is this moment in Israel where they raise up a serpent in their camp. In the middle of the camp there so that people can see it, he raises up a serpent uh, on a pole, a brass serpent in the likeness of what was killing them. And so we have here at the beginning here of this story is about a serpent on a stick. Israel, we find in Numbers 21, is wandering in the wilderness. In fact, the first thing we find about them at this moment is that they are complaining in the wilderness, something we are regularly seeing them do. They are in here a very dire situation, a dire place. They have been traveling through the wilderness, having come out of Egypt, gone through the Red Sea and, and been at uh, Mount Sinai and had the law and, and all that that went along. In fact, they have already traveled and they have stood on the edge of the promised land. They have looked in and seen it. They have sent spies into the promised land. Twelve spies went in. They came back. Ten of them said, no, we can't do it. Two, Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we can. God will do it. But the people believed the lies of the ten. And they refused to go into the promised land at that moment. So they rebelled against their God. So God made them wander through the wilderness some more. Along the way, they rebelled against Moses. They rebel against God. They complain about food and they complain about water again. Not the first time we've seen this happen. Now, as they have stood there at the promised land, it has been, a, for Moses, a bittersweet moment. Because in his desire to lead the people and to do what the people want and endured their constant criticism, he has been able to look into a land that he will never walk into. Because he had disobeyed God by striking the rock when he was told to speak to the rock to get water. Aaron and Miriam, his brother and sister, are dead. So because of the first refusal of them to go into the promised land, they are to travel through the wilderness. They have to go around Edom. There's issues there that they've already had with Edom, which means they're basically heading their way back to the Red Sea where they started from. They're going to spend many, many more years in the desert. They're going backwards now. This isn't a pleasant journey. It's a, in a, an arid, uh, un, unhospitable land at the time. There's a small picture of it on the board behind us. The mountain in the background is Mount Or. The lake that you see there wasn't there. That's the result of, of mining. 
It's, a, uh, it's a, an arid land, uh, a plain which doesn't have much vegetation. These days it's a place of, of uh, recreation. People go and hike and camp through this area. But back then, that's not what it was. It was arid and it was desolate and it was horrible. It was a place which was very often uh, covered in sandstorms. It's likely that as Israel is traveling through this, they're also traveling through it at one of the hottest times of the year. So for Israel, traveling through this land, it's not a recreational journey, it's not a hike, it's not a joy, it's hard and it's ugly and it's difficult. So while they are wandering through this and complaining, they will end up finding cursing in the wilderness. Verse 5 of number 20, Numbers 21 says, And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. The people are again complaining and arguing and, 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 and confronting Moses and rebelling against God. They're bitter and they're angry and they are unthankful. They complain that they have no bread and that they have no water, except God has provided all of that for them in abundance and beyond bread and water. What they meant here, and you can see it in the way they speak, is not that they didn't have provisions and that they didn't have enough to eat. What they meant was, we don't have the delicacies of Egypt. We don't have the pleasure and the comforts of Egypt. We're stuck here in the wilderness eating this. Remember, it's not God's fault that they're there. They had stood on the edge of the promised land and God had promised, I will take you in, and they refused. So they're whining and they're complaining and they're cursing God because of their own decision to rebel against their God. They had a chance to enter but didn't. So this isn't a story about overcoming tough times or the trials of our faith. This is not what this is about. This is a story about sin. That's what this whole thing is about. So we find them complaining in the wilderness, cursing in the wilderness, and crying in the wilderness. And the Lord sent fiery serpents, verse 6, among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Because of their hardness and because of their rebellion and their sin, God judges them. And he sends a fiery serpent into the camp. Now, the description fiery could be a description of a number of things. It, it could be in reference to the pain of the bite and the venom that these snakes had. That's very possible what it was. It could also be, and I think it's, this is the more likely explanation, but either one is, is fine, uh, a description of their color. See on the... the picture behind me that there is a, a serpent there which is red and sparkly kind of brass and bronze colored. That's the type of snake that was in the area. In fact, that snake is still very prevalent through the area and from what I understand is still one of the major causes of death in that area. These are a terribly, terribly venomous snake. From what I understand in, in looking in and reading to them, these, these snakes have a, a bite which uh, produces a, a venom within us which uh, starts internal bleeding, and if not treated, will cause death within one to two days. So this is more than likely the type of snake that's running rampant through the camp of Israel, 
causing people to die so very quickly. Now, God did not send these snakes into the camp to, to bite the people and to, to cause death because he is vindictive, because they were whining and thought, well, I've had enough of their whining. I'm just going to send them some trouble. God, from every step of the way, has done everything for their good. On every step of the way. And yet they continue to scorn his goodness blaspheme him and, and, rebu and uh, rebel against him. So the people in verse 7 come crying to Moses. Moses, make it go away. Go to God and make it go away. Now I've got to tell you, Moses is a remarkable, remarkable man. Because I don't know if I would have responded the same way. They have been cursing God and cursing Moses. They have treated him with absolute disdain. Moses, in his frustration, perhaps like many of us, said, this is your fault. Don't make me intercede for your fault. I tried to get you in and you didn't do it. But Moses doesn't do that. Moses intercedes. He intercedes for a people that accuse him, rebel against him. Moses is, in many ways, a type of Christ. The one who intercedes for a people who are constantly rebelling, who refuse to listen. And in sorrow and repentance, they acknowledge their sin and they seek God's forgiveness. And here is where the confusing event begins. Verse 8, And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass, that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. This solution of God's in this circumstance is a solution which had baffled the Jews from that time on. It didn't make sense. The, the solution that God came up with was not to make the snakes go away. So the snakes are the problem. God sent the snakes. It's killing the people. They've confessed. They're seeking forgiveness from God. But God doesn't make the snakes go away. He tells Moses to make this brass or this bronze snake put it on a pole and stick it up so they have to look at it. Probably on a pole like a flag standard they, they had, which would stand in the middle. If they look at this snake, then they will live. What makes it so confusing is that this doesn't match any other picture we have in the Old Testament. We don't see this type of thing in any of the feasts. We don't see it in any of the sacrifices. It is a completely unusual, almost out-of-place event why? Why do it like this? So the Jews and the teachers of the Jews for centuries had wondered it, it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense why all of this happened. Here's what we do know. We know that Israel is guilty of disobedience. We know that their disobedience brought God's judgment on them. And that salvation from this judgment was to look at the likeness of what was killing them to look at the likeness of their judgment. They could not save themselves here. The poison was deadly. There was no antidote to it. So in order to live, they must look at the bronze serpent. And this is where Jesus takes us to remind us by using this picture of the serpent on the stick to tell us about the Savior 
on a cross. And so in John 3, in verse 14, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So remember I said at the beginning that this is probably the moment the penny drops for Nicodemus. For centuries, this did not make sense to any of them. And now, Jesus is saying, here is why God did it. It may not match anything else that you know, and it's for this moment. This is why God did it the way he did. Christ makes sense of it. Christ makes sense of what didn't make sense before. So in the midst of talking to Nicodemus about the new birth, Jesus uses this event to teach us. There are many pictures of Jesus and salvation in the Old Testament. Moses, as the intercessor, is a picture of Jesus. The ark uh, of salvation is a picture of Jesus. The, the feasts and the sacrifices were all pictures of Jesus and of salvation. And now Jesus uses this event to show that it is a picture of himself. Now, an unusual event will make sense. He's going to be able to rethink this and to understand it. And the reason it's going to make sense now is because Christ doesn't just make sense of it. The reason that Christ Jesus can make sense of it is because he is at the center of it. This is and always has been about Christ, about Jesus. Jesus is putting himself in the center of the serpent episode hidden in the tragedy of this picture is how Jesus will save us from the tragedy of sin. There is a bigger picture here to see, he's telling Nicodemus. Jesus is refocusing our attention. So when he begins there by firstly showing us that there is the raising of a serpent, now he turns it to speak about the raising of the Savior. As Moses lifted up or raised the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up or raised up on a cross. In doing so, in raising up on the cross, we find that sin is conquered. As we see again, and I mentioned this just briefly a moment ago, that Christ's sense of urgency. So he says, and Mo as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There is a sense of urgency, a sense of absolute need here. He must be lifted up. He has moved toward his purpose with urgency. The urgency of the serpent episode. They needed help. They needed help now. And why did they need help now? Because people were dying. We must be born again, Jesus has told us, which is why he must be lifted up. For the same reason the serpent was lifted up. People are dying. So Christ must be lifted up. The same urgency that Jesus lift, lived with all along, this must be done. Jesus made the bite of that serpent and the venom of that serpent a picture to them of sin. Sin is rapid in its progress. You know, once you were bitten by that serpent, you died quickly. 
Sin doesn't tarry and slow in our lives. It ruins us completely. It is painful in its experience, and it's deadly in its result. Just like the serpent, sin brings death. Jesus' death is part of God's plan. Just as God's judgment fell on Israel for sin, so it falls on every one of us. Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Romans 6 verse 23 reminds us, for the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18 verse 20, the soul that sins, it will die. Jesus understood the seriousness of the situation, of what he was there to do. And so he's putting the question to Nicodemus and the same question to us, do we understand the urgency? Do we understand the seriousness of why Jesus is there? And so he reminds us, just like the only way to escape the bite and the venom of the serpent was to look at the serpent on the stick, so Christ is our only hope when it comes to sin. There is no other way to survive. When Jesus says he must be lifted up, he is telling us that there is no other way. There is no other way to find salvation from sin. We must look to Christ on the cross. He is our only hope. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. As the bronze serpent was the only hope of salvation, so Christ is for us. He is the only way that sin can be conquered. And in his conquering of sin, he will be exalted. The Savior will be exalted, which he tells us here is that to do that, for sin to be conquered and for Christ to be exalted, the Savior to be exalted, he must be crucified. He must be crucified. They put the serpent up on a pole so it could be seen by all. So no matter where you were in the camp, you could find a way to see the serpent, to know where it was, to be able to be saved from the bite. It wasn't hidden. It wasn't set aside just for the elite. It wasn't a secret. It was there for everyone to see and everyone to know. To call, to look on, and to see. And just as the serpent was lifted up, it was the likeness of what was killing them. So Jesus is lifted up for all of us to see. He became what was killing us. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He became what was killing us so that he could save us. He bore our sin. He bore our guilt. As Peter says, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, uh, that uh, having been dead to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. Jesus tells us again in John chapter 12, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This, he said, signifying what death he would die. What did Israel have to do to be saved? Look at the snake in belief. 
What do we do for our salvation from sin? Look at Jesus in belief. Jesus died on the cross for you to be saved from your sin. If you're still living, afflicted by the sting of sin and death, look to Jesus. Believe Jesus. Because Christ must be crucified, we are told that he will be exalted. Christ will be exalted. Not only was he lifted up on the cross, because they lifted up on the cross, he will be lifted up in praise eternally. We think of Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, which tells us that you know, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It says, therefore, so because of what he has done, his name will be exalted above all forever. The song that we sing in heaven, when we get just a glimpse of what happens in eternity and how eternity is going to unfold and what's going to happen in eternity, the song we sing, and they sang a new song, you are worthy to open the book and its seals for you were slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. What's the theme of our glory? What's the theme of our praise? Christ lifted up for all eternity. Because he was lifted up on a cross, he will be lifted up by all. This is why every Sunday we sing songs of our Redeemer. And we sing his praises. So the last we see, because the serpent was lifted up, and because Christ was lifted up, there is a rising to life that can happen. We are told in verse 16 or verse 15 that there is a rising to life as we can be saved from death. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Because he is lifted up. And we look at him in belief. Whoever believes in him should not perish. Saved from death. The sting of the serpent in the Old Testament brought death, and so does sin. And we cannot escape it. It will inflict us all. Jesus rescues us so that we might not perish. So that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 can absolutely be true. Oh death, where is your sting? By looking to Jesus and believing in his work on the cross, we are saved from perishing. To perish doesn't just mean to pass away. To perish means eternal torment. To perish means separated from God forever. The God who created you. The God who loves you. Separated from him for all eternity. 1 Timothy chapter 1 says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He saves me from what is killing me. Sin is killing me. And Jesus saves me from sin. Jesus 
like the snake on the stick, is the solution to our problem. Jesus is the solution to your problem. You can be saved from death, but it goes further than that. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Saved from death to eternal life. Salvation isn't just a rescue from hell. I had a, a t-shirt given to me when I was a, a teenager, and one of the things it said on it uh, was about salvation was that it was uh, fire insurance. Salvation is fire insurance. It rest saves you from hell, so you don't burn in the fire. Salvation is not just fire insurance. It's not just about being saved from hell. It is the gift of eternal life. You know, if to perish is to be condemned and to be separated from God forever. Eternal life is the opposite of that, which is the joy of the presence of God forever. To glory and rejoice in that. When Jesus is telling his disciples the night before he dies what he, what he needs to do, that he has to go away. And, and he says he, the reason he goes away to die is so that we can be with him. He then leaves and he spends some time in prayer that night. And in his, his high priestly prayer that night in the garden, he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what is eternal life? Eternal life is not going to heaven. Eternal life is knowing God and being known by God. Not just not going to hell. Not just going to heaven. The reason we go to heaven is because that's where God is. We know our God. It's a restoration of relationship with God. So as I stand here this morning, my plea to you, if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, look to Jesus. Believe what he has done on the cross for you. Imagine, imagine God and Moses listening to Israel whine again. It's not the first time. After all that God has done for them, why spare them after the constant rebellion? Like it's just been one thing after another. They complain about no water, and God provides water. They complain about no food, and God provides manna. They complain about the manna, and God provides quail. They complain about where they're at, and God leads them to, to places of, of peace. They complain about what God has for them, and God puts them on the edge of his promise, and they refuse over and over and over again. And then they end up wandering through the wilderness because of their own sin, and they complain to God about that too. Imagine being Moses and God listening to that over and over and over again, the constant rebellion. Why? Why would God spare these people? Why would Moses intercede for them? Grace. Grace. Expressed in deep, deep love. Which shows itself in divine, sacrificial love. 
That's why our text leads into John 16, 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might have life. Grace. Grace. This is the gospel. This is why Jesus came. We have a desperate need and only one hope of salvation. To answer Nicodemus' question in verse 9 of chapter 3, how is this new birth attained? How is this new life attained? Jesus' death. We get life from his death. Our believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior. John chapter 5. Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Believer, this is our gospel. This is our message. This is our hope. This is our power. The power of the gospel of Christ who was lifted up on a cross to die and resurrected again in three days. The world does not need us to be relevant, to be influential. The world needs us to be bold in the proclamation of Christ lifted up. That's what the world needs from us. The world needs us to lift up a crucified Savior. And so Jesus would tell us, again in John chapter 12, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. Lift Christ up. And when Christ is lifted up, he will draw to salvation. Let's pray together this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word, to see you masterfully use scripture and history to teach us the truth of the glorious message of the gospel. Lord, help us never to forget this, to forget the urgency and the beauty of what you have done by being lifted up on the cross for it is the only way of salvation. Dear God, if there is one here this morning who has not truly believed you as their Savior, who has not sought you to forgive their sins and to know you as God and Savior, Lord, you have been lifted up this morning. Draw to yourself. Dear God, give each one of us as believers the courage to lift your name high, to proclaim a crucified Savior that forgives of sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.